1: trust in my.
0: Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows we shall also see that ultimately as with all scripture that these types and shadows point to the substance which is jesus in this second episode we continue our study of jacob and esau in part one of our episode we were introduced to isaac and rebecca who were for 20 years childless After Isaac entreats the Lord on behalf of Rebekah, Rebekah finds herself pregnant with twins. As it turns out, the twins are said to be struggling and fighting, as if in warfare from the outset. Because of the enormous struggle going on, Rebekah seeks the Lord who informs her that there are two nations, two manners of people in her womb. Traditionally, the firstborn male child was one who inherited the right and mantle of leadership and authority of the family name. For example, it was understood that the first son was worthy of both a unique blessing and a double portion of the inheritance. So in the case of a special blessing, God had promised Abraham that he would make him very fruitful. He would make nations of him, and kings would come from him. God would also establish his covenant as an everlasting covenant between Abraham, his descendants, and himself for the generations to come to be his God and the God of Abraham's descendants after him. God would also give the land as an everlasting possession to Abraham and his descendants after him, and he would be their God. This promise from God also constituted a birthright promise which was to be handed down to the firstborn child. However, in this case, as the two twins were in the womb, God reveals that one son would be stronger than the other and that the elder would serve the younger. As it turns out, Esau, who came out first, was soon followed by Jacob, who caught Esau by his heel, wherefrom Jacob obtains his name, which means, quote, heel holder, unquote, or, quote, supplanter, unquote. As the two grow up, our study demonstrates that Esau is a worldly, fleshly, carnal man who enjoys killing living animals and who only thinks of the moment. Esau knows about the birthright promise and what it entails, but he does not apparently believe in God heaven, the hereafter, the resurrection, or God's promises. What matters to Esau is a full belly, carnal pleasures here and now, and those things that he can put in his pocket or hold in his hand. In contrast, we found Jacob, who apparently liked, if not loved, God's instruction. Jacob was drawn to faith in God, heaven, the hereafter, the resurrection, and God's promises. Jacob knew about the birthright and what it entailed, therefore Jacob valued and yearned for it, whereas Esau did not. As we ended our last episode, we saw Esau coming weary from the field, a supposed, quote, hunting trip, unquote, under the belief that he is dying from fatigue. Esau finds his brother Jacob preparing lentils, possibly for his father Isaac to cheer him up from Abraham's recent death. During this encounter, Esau requests the lentil meal from Jacob, who agrees to sell them to Esau as the price of Esau giving Jacob the lentils. Jacob does so, and after Esau eats the meal, Esau gets up and goes about his business having happily sold the most valuable thing their family possesses for lentils and bread. Not only so, but Esau is said to quote-unquote despise his birthright. In Genesis 26, the chapter begins with the subject being a famine in the land. God warns Isaac not to go down to Egypt to avoid the famine. Rather, God instructs Isaac to sojourn in the land of Gerar, which is in modern south-central Israel. God also reiterates his promise to Abraham to bless Abraham and Isaac. The majority of the chapter spends 20-plus verses detailing Isaac's attempts to locate and dig wells of water in the land of Gerar. Isaac and his family managed, due to God's blessing, to become so prosperous that Abimelech asked Isaac and his family to depart. Later, as Isaac surpassed Abimelech and the Philistine people, Abimelech and his chief captain of the Philistine army approach Isaac in verses 26-31, through seeing that God has prospered them. Abimelech requests that Isaac enter into an oath with him that Isaac will do no harm to Abimelech or his people. Apparently, Isaac agrees since in verse 30, Isaac prepares a feast where they eat and drink, and the next day they swear an oath as agreed and go on their way. Finally, in verses 34 and 35, we read, quote, and Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife, Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. So here Esau is 40 years old and decides to marry. Given that Isaac had married Rebekah at the same age, the idea of marriage itself would not be a problem. But here, with such a throwback memory for Isaac and Rebekah, Esau marries not one, but two Hittite women. We get the unambiguous idea that neither Isaac nor Rebekah were pleased with the marriages. In fact, we are told that they both had, quote, grief of mind, unquote. In order to put this grief of mind into perspective and understand its cause, let us go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 22. Here, we learn that Ham disrespected his father Noah, and as a result, Noah cursed Ham, Ham's son Canaan, and Canaan's descendants. One of Canaan's sons was Heth, according to Genesis chapter 10, verse 15. Esau's first two wives were both Hittites. According to Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah complains about Esau's wives, calling them the, quote, daughters of Heth, unquote. Now, there is an entire history lesson which gives clarity as to why Isaac and Rebekah would have grief of mind because of the Hittites. But in short, beginning with Ham, his son Canaan's descendants were generically referred to as Canaanites. As Genesis 10 continues, we learn that Canaan also produced the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zamorites, and Hamathites. These, as it turned out, were historically all the peoples who Israel later had problems with because of their idol worship and godless practices. Ham also produced Cush, the father of Nimrod, who we have already studied previously in the episode entitled The Tower of Babel. Now fast forward back to chapter 15 of Genesis, where we find God entering into his covenant with Abraham. In this covenant, God promises to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham is told his descendants will suffer 400 years of bondage and that eventually, when freed, they will return to the land of Canaan. Regarding this 400 years of bondage, God makes a curious statement in verse 16 saying, quote, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full." As we know, in chapter 18 and 19, God was forced to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, whose descendants were comprised from the descendants of Canaan. Despite this and other encounters, Canaan's descendants continued in their idol worship and wicked living, all the way until Moses, Joshua, and Israel's descendants fought with, defeated, and killed many. The complete details of Ham, Canaan, and the constant evils which they lived by will have to wait for another episode. Suffice it to say that, like some today, they lived and acted according to doing what was right in their own eyes. Despite living among God's people and knowing the true God, they one and all committed themselves to rebellion in every way imaginable to God. It was because of this rebellion and wickedness that we find Abraham making Eliezer swear not to allow his son Isaac to take any Canaanites for his wife in Genesis chapter 24, verse 3. Quote, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, unquote. Now we know that Eleazar went through a great deal of trouble to fulfill this promise and obtain a wife, Rebekah, for Abraham's son Isaac. Given this level of urgency and difficulty, Are we to now believe that Abraham did not pass on all of his reasons as well as God's reasons for avoiding Canaanite entanglements? Did both Isaac and Rebekah forget how they met and the circumstances surrounding it? I doubt that either one is the case. We are not given any information on the preliminaries of Esau's marriages. In the end, there are only so many possibilities. Maybe Isaac and Rebekah approved of the marriages or perhaps set them up. Perhaps they both protested, threatening, and did everything they could. Perhaps Esau did an early version of an elopement, never informing Isaac or Rebekah, and just showed up after the honeymoon with two Canaanite wives in tow. All we know is that the end result was that Esau married two Canaanite women who were a grief of mind to both Isaac and Rebekah. The only other clue we receive is from the Targums, which say this regarding Esau's wives. Quote, and Esau was a son of forty years, and he took up to wife Yehudith, daughter of Beri, the Hittah, and the daughter of Elon, the Hittah, And they bowed in strange worship, and set themselves to rebel in their evil conduct against Isaac and against Rebekah. And they were refractory, swelling in spirit, with strange worship, and would not receive instruction either from Isaac or Rebekah." With this addition, our earlier suspicions are fully confirmed. Both of Esau's wives were fully steeped in idol worship to false gods. Since they and their people were in rebellion to God, it comes as no surprise that both of Esau's wives refused to listen to or accept the authority of Isaac or Rebekah. Even more sadly, we see that Esau's disbelief disregard and disdain for the things of the Lord appeared to have grown. Doubtless, having lived near or among the Hittites, Esau knew their customs and behavior. Surely we are not laboring under the belief that Esau married two women whom he had never met before. Either he married for looks and companionship alone and had no concern or desire for what these women believed or who they worshipped, Or, Esau knew very well that they worshipped false gods, and he did not care. Whichever the case was, within some period of time, we find the daughters were bowing in strange worship, as well as rebelling against Isaac and Rebekah. During this time, we are not told whether Esau worshipped along with his wives, with his parents, or not at all. We know that Esau's wives did not worship in secret because we have the comment that Isaac and Rebekah had grief of mind because of Esau's wives. This is almost certainly because of the conflict and offense of the idol worship which Esau's wives engaged in. Invariably, Esau had to be torn between showing respect and solidarity towards his mother, father, and God, and pleasing and appeasing his wives. In the end, this dilemma is precisely the reason why God wanted Abraham, Isaac, and the children of Israel to be separate from unbelievers. Paul clarifies this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, which says, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Unquote. As we open chapter 27 of Genesis and read verses 1 through 4, we find the following quote, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son? And he said unto him, Behold, here I am. And he said, Behold now, I am old, I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver, and thy bow, and go out to the field, and take me some venison, and make me savory meat such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Bear in mind that when we read that time passed and Isaac was old, A general study of biblical chronology places both Esau and Jacob at 40 years old when Esau took his two Hittite wives. At the time, Isaac would have been 100. The best math and some traditions say that Jacob received the blessing when he was about 77 years old. This means that about 37 years had passed since Esau married, making Isaac about 137 years old when this blessing incident took place. So here Isaac prepares to bless Esau because by his own estimation, he does not know the day of his death, despite the reality that after giving the blessings, Isaac lives another 50 years after the blessings are given. Despite misjudging the timing of his death, Isaac deems this event as the timing when he will bestow the traditional patriarchal blessing to his son. Here our story begins to reach its climax, which has been building for Esau and Jacob for some seventy years. On this all important occasion, Isaac is going to provide his blessing, and by proxy, the blessing given directly by God to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac and now from Isaac to his son. Now, even in Abraham's time, it was the custom that the firstborn son would be the one who would have the right and privilege of receiving the inheritance from their father. From a purely secular sense, it was a right without regard to the particular merits of the child in question, except in extreme cases. While there was clearly a worldly tradition among the Jews, we nevertheless find examples where this tradition was interrupted for various reasons. Case in point, Isaac himself would have been keenly aware of the benefits of having been the beneficiary where the traditional line of inheritance was skipped. As you will recall, Abraham's technical firstborn child was Ishmael, Thus, from a purely secular sense, Ishmael would have been the world's legal candidate for receiving the inheritance. However, because Ishmael was the product of Abraham and Sarah's fleshly attempts to fulfill God's promise, Ishmael was excluded. Instead, Isaac is named by God because Isaac is the child who is the product of God's grace and of Abraham's faith. Knowing all this, Isaac calls for his son Esau and prepares to transfer and bestow the blessings to him. This decision by Isaac begs numerous theological questions. Firstly, why would Isaac, who had seen, learned, and knew so much of God, decide to confer such an enormously important blessing given by God to a man, i.e. Esau, who had repeatedly and obviously intentionally disregarded and rebelled against the things of the Lord. To begin with, there was a revelation by God to Rebekah that Esau, i.e. the elder, would serve the younger, i.e. Jacob. We must assume that Rebekah told Isaac about this, as it would be absurd to believe otherwise. Even assuming that Rebecca kept the revelation secret, it must have been obvious to everyone after 60 plus years that Esau had little, if any, love for the things of God. From the Bible, we know that his first and perhaps only concern was for the things of this world and the flesh. Esau loved to hunt and kill animals for the fun of it, his primary focus was eating, drinking, and filling his own belly. If we can trust the Targums, Esau was a complete rebel who was fully into licentious and carnal living and loving. Placing perhaps the nail in his own coffin, Esau deigns to marry not one, but two heathen idol-worshipping women who caused constant grief of mind to both Isaac and Rebekah. Even if we grant that Esau was completely blind, He still uh, would have had to know these things about Esau. If so, then why would a man who knew God and the importance of God's blessings decide to give that blessing to such a blatantly rebellious man? If Jacob is the kind of man whom we have interpreted correctly, then we should expect Isaac to call Jacob and to give him the blessing rather than his brother. What is the explanation? Considering the incident to date, I would submit that we have the following options. 1. Isaac is wittingly following the rudimentary secular tradition of giving his blessing to his eldest son regardless of Esau's spiritual and or moral condition. 2. When the text says that Esau's eyes were dim, We could look at the original language saying that Isaac was quote-unquote old, or quote, his eyes were dim, quote-unquote, and or quote, he could not see, unquote, which clearly gives the legitimate alternate translation that Isaac was not suffering simply from poor eyesight, but rather that his mental and spiritual state of discernment were weak and or failing, Thus, Isaac was attempting to bestow the blessing incorrectly based upon a viewpoint absent the discernment given by God. 3. Some points of one and or two are correct. However, there is a deeper theological truth being given here which touches on being a possible type casting a shadow to the substance intended. Now, if we take the case that the first is true and accept that Isaac is wittingly following the rudimentary secular tradition of giving his blessing to his eldest son, regardless of Esau's spiritual and or moral condition, then we must also accept a very sad and uneventful ending for Isaac's life. Here we have one of the fathers of faith, a man who was there when God stayed his father's hand, sparing Isaac's life, And preparing a ram for sacrifice in prophecy of the anticipated Messiah we have a man who had the guiding hand of God behind finding his wife Rebecca finally Isaac had the privilege of having God speak to him and reiterate the promises made to Abraham directly to him in chapter 26 Yet, despite all this, we have Isaac who now has the spiritual resume to know better preparing to bless a man, i.e. Esau, who he should definitely know better based upon evidence which abounds. Apparently, under this premise, we are led to believe that regardless of all the contempt for the things of God that Esau displayed, Despite the revelation from God to Rebekah, and despite the fact that it would be important to maintain a lineage necessary to lead to the eventual birth of the promised Messiah, Isaac was content to turn a blind eye and confer God's blessing on Esau simply because it was tradition. Alternately, Perhaps we can excuse Isaac under this second possibility because Isaac had reached the point in his life where due to dementia, mental illness, lack of discernment and general deterioration due to advanced age that Isaac no longer was able to know the difference between simply carrying out cultural and family rituals and seeking, obeying and following God's will. Finally, there is the possibility that while there are many legitimate and valid interpretations to this Bible scene playing itself out, as we peel them back we may see another scenario wherein we look beyond the individual players and by God's grace seek the substance casting its shadows to the types given. What we need to do is to prayerfully seek God's gift of discernment in correctly casting the various characters in our story. If, by God's grace, we are able to do so, then it may be possible to go beyond the uh, one-dimensional story at hand and understand the possible substance intended. In the episodes following, we hope to do so. For the time being, though, this concludes this episode. Please join me for episode three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P A S T O R underscore yeshua at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
1: The world falls know that He has found me. Christ the rock is my foundation. I will trust in Him. I will trust in Him. I will trust in Him.